Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's the Rugby World Cup edition for week four of the tournament here in France. It's Christy Doran joining from St. Etienne and Sam Bruce hosting as usual from Bordeaux. Uh, Christy, a nice drive uh, west from uh, St. Etienne yesterday for me. Um, was uh, yeah, four or four and a half, five hours, I guess, a stop along the way and pulled into a very nice little Airbnb here in Bordeaux and just ready to just ease back for a couple of days. The Wallabies are going to be doing that. They're having three days off. I saw a few of them. Uh, they were out and about following their game, their win on against Portugal on Sunday. Some of the coaching members were having a few drinks yesterday afternoon at Sedetian. Good opportunity to take a breather. Uh, did you have a red? You're in, you're in a wine country, aren't you? It's on the agenda for today or tomorrow, I think. Um, I may have slipped in a rosé or two last night. Yeah. Um, just, uh, yeah, nice. Not that I haven't been doing that across the past few weeks, but, uh, yeah, nice to just um, take a step back after what's been a, uh, a busy few weeks, um, day-to-day, flat-out, uh, and, of course, plenty going on with the Wallabies and Australian rugby uh, as Everyone who listens to this pod will know. Um, mate, we may as well head straight there and head to the 34-14 victory from the Wallabies over Portugal on Sunday evening at St. Etienne. Um, look, job done, wasn't it? Five points, bonus point win. Um, Portugal showed uh, a lot of fight, certainly a, a really attacking intent. And they've got some handy players with some um, brilliant footwork and Certainly looked to move the ball side to side and really opened up the Wallabies. I think they finished with about 10 clean breaks. But, I mean, it was essentially that, wasn't it? It was, was job done. Um, you wouldn't say it was a, a faultless performance from Australia by any stretch of the imagination. It was better from where they were, both against Wales and Fiji. Obviously, the, the opposition wasn't quite there. And now, I guess, it's just playing the waiting game. A huge waiting game because you've almost got to go 24 hours earlier to see... BG scrape across the line against mm. fired up Georgian pack and, and side and they could have gone into the halftime shed sixteen nil and as it turns out it was nine nil that they went into the sheds and they get overrun seventeen twelve an incredible game and that allowed CG to get four points they needed five to essentially knock out the Wallabies so they were already playing a waiting game to see how BG would go against Georgia then a Yes, uh, an okay performance. Uh, now they've got a long week, a, a week of waiting. And as Eddie Jones said following the game, they're now no longer in control of their destiny. And that's the biggest disappointment. It's something it's that Eddie Jones has always been able to do throughout this stage is he's not necessarily play the best footy, win games and get across the line. I, I was very impressed by the Portuguese uh, attack and 10 nine breaks to five. That told you a fair bit of what happened mm. because... Yes, there was a um, a late withdrawal of Carter Gordon off the bench, but it was pretty much a, a team that was had a fair bit of continuity in the in the respect that even though there was a midfield change with no Karevi uh, dropping back to the uh, out of the squad and then back on the bench for Gordon, there was a combination between Donaldson, uh, Lalakai Fiketti, Izzy Parisi, Mark Nwanganiwasi, and you could see at times that that combination came to the fore, and Izzy Parisi showed that. That, that physical nature of how he, he can manage to tackle break so often. We've seen that for a couple of years for the Waratah. That was one of the upsides. But the attack that the Portuguese offered was probably more than what the Wallabies have done all year. And that's the brutal reality of it, isn't it? Like, they were the, the, the hand speed, the passing, 
um, the running lines were far superior than what I think we've seen from this Wallabies team throughout the World Cup campaign, where it's all been a trash ball off a, a line out or a scrum through the midfield. And we even saw that with Angus Bell, first phase from the line out, crashing over, gain line advantage. Shortly after, uh, another one from, from Rob Valentini who offloads to Richie Arnold, and there was a try there. But it was so won out right this throughout this campaign, which I think is a bit of an indictment about where this coaching side is, where the playing group is, and what they were trying to do because the attack was very poor. Yeah, good points around the coaching side of things, and perhaps we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later because there are going to be um, significant changes whether uh, one Edward Jones stays in the job or not moving forward. Um, yeah, excellent point around the Portuguese. Um, I was amazed at just the size of a couple of these guys who walk through the mix zone. Now, when you're sitting up high and you perhaps haven't had a good look at the um, the program and, and look at some of the, the heights and weights of these guys, but there are a couple of those backs that came through and, and you know, they, they look little more than, than schoolboy size, but their footwork, as I mentioned earlier, um, slide of hand and, and every time the Wallabies got engaged into a bit of a kicking battle, you just had a feeling of how this was going to play out and it wasn't going to play out well for Australia. And there was a, um, a key tackle from Andrew Kellaway clearly on right on half time there in the corner, just got in to, to deny, I think it was the number seven uh, over in that far left-hand corner on the opposite touchline to where you and I were sitting. And um, I was just watching the chase and the, the defensive alignment on the chase at that time. And you could just see how it was going to unfold um, they had two or three forwards out on that far side and the way Portugal kicked, they, it was, might have been one or two back and forth and then they said, yep, this is the moment, let's go. And and when they did shift wide from those kicking battles, you, you just thought that this is how it was going to unfold, that the gaps were there, uh, the Wallabies chase was fractured and um, they're a brilliant attacking team, Portugal. And um, just on, on, on the drive yesterday, talking with, with my old man around, um, he'd been in the crowd and, um, you know, really great atmosphere, wasn't it? Number one there at um, the stage, Jeffrey Guichard. And if we could have more stadiums like that in the world, um, you know, the atmosphere at rugby games wouldn't be uh, compared to a, a funeral as it is at times. Um, and a lot of uh, contests around the world and, well, particularly in Australia. But um, just uh, talking to, he was talking to some of the Portuguese fans and, um, they were saying, look, we've, we've got a lot of talent in the country, but we, we can't get any games and therefore we, we can't get any money. And this is a wider problem for, for world rugby, isn't it at the moment? Because the, the amount of money in the game isn't enough to, you know, to properly fund it and, and try and, um, bring on these emerging nations like Portugal and, and Georgia and, um, who else has shown a thing or two in this world cup, certainly Uruguay as well. Um. But uh, just, yeah, the, the, the chase on, on the counter from the Wallabies, I thought, was, was subpar the other night. Oh, it's a great example to highlight. You could almost highlight just off the initial, I think it was the initial line-out, the first set piece. So the Wallabies have a, about a minute and a half possession, which you know, it almost blows your mind about the fact that they managed to control the ball as well as they did move it off the kickoff well inside the 22 uh, before there, there was a knock-on, I think, from Tate McDermott at a half-back. But... It took a while for Portugal uh, to get their hands on the ball. And immediately when they did, they stretched the Wallabies. They moved it from the halfway line to around the 22-meter mark. They stretched the Wallabies midfield uh, and outside um, backs. And 
that just gave you an early insight into the Sevens brand of rugby that they've done and they've grown up with. And you can see that, that their desire to use the ball was, I think, so, so refreshing to watch. Yep. We, we, were, we were there for Le- um, in Lyon a couple of nights earlier watching the All Blacks play uh, and, and they just ripped and, and teared uh, Italy 96-17, I think it was, full time. Yep. and. Yes, it was it was great to see how lethal New Zealand is. We already know that, but to see an emerging rugby nation stretch, uh, still at a recognised country like Australia, brilliant. And Eddie Jones, to his credit, and maybe it was deflection, but he said that he pointed to the fact that at full time, shaking hands, um, having a conversation with the opposition coach, acknowledging what a wonderful game it was. Because before you, we, we slice and dice it all. It was an exciting game to watch. As an Australian perspective, you think, wow, okay, this is, it was wild. It was, there's a lot of issues with, with the way the Wallabies are playing, the defensive alignments, the decision-making, the, you know, the ill-discipline. But wow, it was raucous saying It was one of the loudest atmospheres I've heard. Um, the Portuguese really, like they, they the Wallabies defended uh, very well at times for about a 10 minute passage where they were down to 13 men after the yellow cards to Matty Fesler and to Stamo Karevi, uh, once again leading with his elbow. But to, to defend as well as they did for that time, I thought was impressive. But outside of that, it, it shows the how, how, how much the world is enjoying, I think, Australia's struggles here, particularly with Eddie Jones at the helm, because once again, he was booed. And it was just this, this this atmosphere of hostility almost towards Australia and Australian rugby and everything that it represents. And on the on this, and we've seen this right the way through with Wales, with Fiji, with uh, Georgia. The world seems like they're out to get Australian rugby at the moment, and it's and, and it's a confusing state of affairs. I think on one hand, but so so great to see Portugal push Australia as, as much as they did. We've got to remember it was 24-7 at a half time. Like it was a, the Australians managed to play some rugby, you get some ascendancy, you get a real strong foothold through the forwards. And it's rare that you see so many type five forwards go into a half time break with the ones that are try scorers in Australian rugby. But but that was probably a difference. The 10 minute period there, they managed to stretch the game for Australia. But outside of that, Portuguese were very much in it. Certainly were, and and that was why Kellaway's tackle there on halftime was was so big. You know, at twenty four, had it been 24-12, uh, at the break there, and and that's a you know a slightly you know different game moving forward, particularly uh, as we how we saw Portugal go go on and really, I guess from the fifty minute mark onwards, dominate that that second half, and the Wallabies did defend really well when they were down at thirteen men. A couple of um drop balls there that Portugal will lament um that when they really needed to to execute perfectly to to make a late run under. But while the scoreboard wasn't that close, the anxiety I still felt was high. And if you're an Australian sitting in that stand, you would have been just nervously shifting in your seat. Now, a lot of that would have been amplified by the week that was, right? And um, how the game has um, been absolutely torn to shreds back home, um, uh, rightfully so, um, given what looks to be a, a new rock bottom for the Wallabies at the World Cup. Uh, and a, what are we at now? Two and seven for the year under under Eddie Jones. And a lot of hard questions have been asked and, and will be continued to be asked moving forward. But there was just enough tension in the air to think, 
Yeah, I think this scoreboard is safe from an Australian perspective, but a couple of quick tries there, and had they had that one before half time, then this could have been a hell of a lot closer. And I just come back to some of the you know inaccuracies again for Australia. The thing that stood out for me, I think their their attacking breakdown was was probably a bit better. Uh, Portugal didn't have the on ball threats that um, Fiji and and Wales did clearly, but um, some of the placement and and loose carries into contact there. There was one from Marika Corabetti just before half time when. You know, one more try into the 30s and, you know, Australia may well have come out and hit 50 or 60 in that second half to really break the spirits there on on half time. But I reckon there was half a dozen at least just poor placement of the ball in tackles at the breakdown, skews out the side, um, the play breaks down or, or Portugal jumped on the ball and, and it was a turnover and a couple of wonky lineouts again. Um, some of the discipline stuff. I, I mean, Karevi coming off the bench and, and not only the leading with the elbow, but the late tackle to start with. Like, that's the guy who, um, I haven't got it in front of me, but must be up to, what, 40 or 50 tests now at least. Um, and he's coming off the bench and, and doing that in, in a game that, yeah, Australia have got all the pressure on them the, that they sh- are expected to win and, and should win. But it's, it's just brain-dead kind of stuff at times. I have to agree. And and that comes down to the lack of detail in the game at the moment. And it's the rolling war struggles continued, particularly on the defensive side. And that's where you see a Fizzler uh, eventually get sent to the scene bin. And, and that came off the back of multiple uh, discipline errors. And uh, Karevi looked, looked, yeah, he's been dropped. Well, we've got to make that clear and, uh, Eddie Jones said as much on the Friday morning that he'd been disappointed by the way that he'd returned following his ACL into a couple of hamstring injuries, which delayed his progress. And of course, he missed the game against France and even the World Cup, um, that following some hand surgery. And and it all seemed incredibly rushed at every stepping stone. And that's the unfortunate thing from getting new coaches to coaches leaving on the eve of the World Cup campaign to having coaches and completely different areas, um, areas that they generally work in. Um, and, and, uh, the, 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 he just looked, he looked either frustrated or trying to exp- take out all his anger out and leave it out in the field because something like that, that late tackle. And, and yes, we've got to say it wasn't high, which is the thing that saved him from not getting a yellow card in the first yep. place, because it was very late and, and the hostility of the crowd uh, worked everyone up into a friends, um, and and the Georgian referee, I think, actually handled things pretty well on the whole. Yep. But but it was a that was another brain explosion into another brain explosion for Karevi to lead with the elbow, and he just looked angry, didn't he? He didn't look like a person that was either ready to play or. Um, or was completely on top of both the mind and his body at the time because Karevi's a much better player. We'd even spoken to him about the elbow issues against Wales from four years earlier. He knew that that was perhaps part of his game and what he's got to do, and and that was reckless. Um, where do you, when, when you, and you know, it, it is more than likely that the Wallabies don't progress into the quarterfinals. Fiji would have to not get a bonus point against Portugal. And, and on the evidence of what we saw, Portugal, if they have a crowd behind them, could in fact pose a few threats for the Fijians, particularly if yellow cards or red cards creep back into their game, which has been perhaps 
uh, an Achilles heel for them over World Cups historically. All the pressure, the expectation will be on them. Um, they only need to get one point out of it. If indeed the Wallabies don't progress, who do you think has stood out for you? Uh, who, uh, who, where are the rays of hope, the green shoots for you to take going forward from a, a playing perspective? You're probably going to start with Angus Bell, Christy, I think. And um, we've known um, that this kid has got talent. He's probably, um, you know, the, the most impressive young prop to come out of Australia, I think, for quite some time, maybe since James Slipper. Um, now, James Slipper has gone on to become the most capped uh, World Cup player of all time uh, with 21 on the weekend. And the Wallabies were, were right to make mention of that. Um in their post game, um, speaking with Rob Liotta after in the mix zone, and I know you, you were with um, Lalakai Fakedi and I think Isaac Finesley, Loasa. I think most of them, most of the guys, um, were really uh, you know in awe of Slips and, and what he he's done for that team moving forward. But I think you got to start with with Angus Bell. Um, he's scrummaging. You know, there's probably some improvement to come there, and he'd be the first guy to admit that. That you know the the bread and butter of props is you got to nail your set piece. But but what he offers in the loose. Uh, it was evident again on Saturday. We saw it um, in the Bledisloe Cup in, in Melbourne earlier in the year with that huge run when the game was gone in the second half. He's got footwork. Yeah, he's got a nice short pass on him. He's got the ability to kind of bump off one or two defenders simultaneously. And I think, number one, that he's just got a good brain on him. Like, there's, you don't see those kind of other things from that, you know, raised forearms and, you know, just unforgivable kind of turnovers or um silly penalties from from angus bell he's he's locked in on what he needs to do his job and the team's job and um you know i think he's probably a a wilder chance of to being a wallabies captain in the future um just given and i think the big thing right you can see how much he's hurt too this year like he's only 22 and and that's a the exciting thing and b when i talk about hurt what what it already means to him like it was his 27th or 28th test on the weekend i've got to remember this kid's only three or four years maybe only three years um into his his test career and, and what he's got ahead of him but there's cause for genuine excitement there um elsewhere look i don't think there's too many to be honest um because of the some of the selections we've seen um both uh before the tournament and, and during. I thought Rob Valentini was back to his best the other night, clearly a man of the match. thought he'd probably had a bit of a quieter World Cup from from what we've come to expect from Rob, but perhaps that's um, been born out of uh, his play for the Brumbies in recent times and then what he's done largely for the Wallabies at, at test level and kind of being among those top two or three players every game. Um, who else? Uh, I think that... I think there's some rugby starts there with Nick Frost as well. Physically, he's yeah. still got a couple of years to go to develop there to get to that, you know, Sam Whitelock um, ability to be able to withstand contact, keep leg drive. Um, he's nailed the area around the rolling mall. That's a real area that he can work on in time. But he's a he's another guy I think with rugby starts. You're right to point out Angusville. What a player! Um, you see the maturity in his game, which perhaps. Taniela Tupo as a 26, 27-year-old hasn't been able to bring into his game yet. And that's something for Taniela to work on. Um, Mark Nwanganidawasi is a, a massive uh, tick. He just continues to, 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 to develop and it's the confidence that he plays with, I think. 
But after that, out. after that first game against Georgia, they didn't really kick well to him, did they? You know, they they both Carter Gordon and Ben Nolson kicked really well for Mark Norgan Edouasi in that first game in Paris. Um, but it just didn't happen beyond that. And um, you and I have both spoken to him about how he, you know, he backs himself in the air, um, both in attack and defence. And um, nine times out of ten, he's going to get the leap on opponents. But you've got to have that kicking accuracy to start with to get him the time, the space um, to get up and, and contest against the opposition back three. Because without that, then, you know, he's, he's just not going to be in the contest. True, and you're right. I think it comes down to the fact that they just haven't had the front football, the the, the dominance in carry to allow them to kick on your terms. And that's a big thing. New Zealand kick on their terms so often because they win that, that contact battle and they kick on their terms for their wingers, their ships uh, in behind defensive lines to, to mix things up. Uh, they haven't had that since Skelton and Tupo haven't been there. Uh, the question for you, it's going to sound like an excuse. Do you think the Wallabies, maybe they didn't deserve to make a quarterfinal uh, regardless, but do you think that they would have made a quarterfinal with Skelton and Tupo being there for at least the Fijian game? It's a good question. And uh, unlike Eddie Jones, I will deal in hypotheticals. Um, it's, I, I think probably, yes. I, I, I would think given the way that they just couldn't kind of generate that front football against Fiji. I think they're probably more likely of beating Fiji than than Wales, um, given the the closeness of that that contest. And um, I, I I just think that with those two guys in there, there would have been a little bit more front football through the middle. I don't think the Fijians would have dominated the breakdown quite like they did, even though um, the referee Andrew Brace was uh, just lightning. Um, on the turnover, um, on the holding on calls in that game. I don't think I've quite seen anything like it. Um, anywhere else in the tournament or scratching my head for recent memory that would compare. Um, but yeah, and that maybe that's a nice little segue, mate, then from into just the coaching staff, centralization, um, which Phil Wall spoke about again yesterday. We know there's some resistance from the Brumbies, um, SNC. And if we start with the coaching piece, even let's say hypothetical again, Eddie Jones um, does stay on. And I think you and I have both got doubts that he will. Um, just in terms of the other, his assistants that are going, um, Jason Riles, obviously going back to rugby league with the Melbourne Storm. Dan Palmer, after the World Cup, joining Dan McKellar at Leicester. Pierre-Henri Bronken, um, who's been in charge of the balls, which, you know, is really inconceivable um, given uh, that he's a, he's a scrum half and what we've seen the evidence of the Wallabies more which even got marched back I think by Portugal the other night just a complete um, the uh, the full house of uh, embarrassing declining moments for the team um, and there's probably one or two other guys there that may not be around Brett Hodgson he's the interesting one because we haven't been able to put any questions to Brett Hodgson through this period have we I think he was on a a Zoom interview after his appointment was announced, but he hasn't been put up for media throughout this tournament. Now, I don't know whether that's Eddie Jones protecting him. Um, I don't know whether he just refuses to. I don't know if you can, but as an assistant. Um, but there's going to be significant change around that group as it is next year, whether or not Eddie Jones stays or goes, right? 
Yeah, Neil Hatley perhaps being the other one to to highlight uh, the 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 forwards coach. He's been taking care of scrum, uh, a guy that previously worked with England ahead of the 2019 World Cup. Uh, he he said on following the captain's run on, on Saturday local time anyway that he was uh, keen to stay on. Uh, whether or not uh, he's allowed to remains to be seen. But yeah, there's going to be movement, and that's probably a good thing because there's no way on earth you want that coaching team going forward and that's the, that's that that's just what it is and this was the mismatch of figures and with each coaching appointment it was it was mm, it was scratching in their head okay this very much is an Eddie Jones mad scientist approach to this World Cup which is completely backfired uh, like pretty much every decision with perhaps the exception of Will Skelton uh, as as skipper but we didn't get to see enough of that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, the, the coaching team is one of the real fundamental issues with this campaign, I think, is that uh, there's been very little detail, very little understanding of the game, very little probably, like, too much left on Eddie Jones, I think. He's not the person who should be coaching the detail to this this side. That is that is the coaching team who should be doing that. The, the Wallabies game plan, I think, was exposed as well, I, I thought. Most of what they were trying to achieve backfired. I, I, you know, it was hard to understand why at times they were kicking. Clearly, they were told kick first, and eventually, uh, they probably realised that that wasn't working. But, but that'll that'll change. And if Eddie Jones is allowed to, that's such an important piece of the puzzle. Is getting getting forward is getting that right. Because if he doesn't, you're probably going to see more of the issues that we've seen over the last six months. But, but especially in the last three months since the 10th season started, way back July 9 against South Africa and Pretoria. Just on Eddie, Christy, I mean, what is your gut feeling at this point in time? Um, the other night post-match, he said, look, uh, I've got three days off and then three days of coaching and I, I can't look beyond that. Now, it, I try and bring the listeners inside what we've been um, watching, listening to, hearing, and, and perhaps a lot of you may have um, watched the Wallabies presses on, on YouTube or on the Rugby World Cup side. I don't know whether you get the, the full 25 minutes um, of some or just, you know, short um, grabs and bits and pieces. Um, but it's it's the inability for me from him, or sorry, the refusal to put a definitive time frame on his future and Another shout out to our colleague and, and good friend Tom Decent, um, who broke the big story around the the interviews with the Japanese um, Rugby Football Union. Uh, certainly one Zoom interview, and then uh, it is alleged that he has a, a second one um, planned. But uh, the messaging, I can't move away from the messaging, and that it just feels that he he's headed for the exit door stage left for me, Eddie Jones. I I, I just the as I said, the refusal to say, when asked, um, will you be coaching the Wallabies in, in 2024? How long are you committed to Australian rugby for? Um, I'm committed to Australian rugby. Now, without putting that time frame on it, he's not committing to anything for me beyond Sunday. Uh, and he did that again, clearly, after that Portugal game last Sunday. So I don't know what you, your thinking is, mate, what, whether you've heard things to the counter, um, but... You know, if I was to put a, I guess, a percentage chance on it right now, I think it's probably 70-30 that, that Eddie Jones is walking away. 
It's extremely hard to know because Eddie James has been someone that's always been known by those that he's coached to someone who's a bit of a joker at times. Um, very serious when it comes to the rugby, but he plays some games, always is playing my games. And and even way back five months ago when he was first, uh, there were first rumours going around that he might not be there beyond the, this, this World Cup campaign. Those that he was co- that, that, that co- were coached by Eddie all thought, no, this is an Eddie Jones kind of trick. Uh, I, I think you're probably right. It's, I feel like it might be a 50-50 scenario at the moment. Some of the things that maybe tip the scales is whether or not centralisation gets through. For me, from what I've heard, centralisation, uh, private equity dollars, or at least more money coming into the system was something that Eddie Jones was very adamant had to happen. Now, if those things don't happen, how does that impact on your coaching ability to influence? And yes, he ripped up and tossed everything away over the last three months, but I think he did that thinking that what was there already wasn't enough and he had to do that. Uh, Till yesterday, we'll get to that in a moment, he had some own thoughts when I kind of asked questions about that. But, But I think for him to stay beyond this World Cup campaign, he would have to see some of those markers come to fruition and that is the ability to kind of become much more aligned, have more control over players and uh, be able to see things like the, the strength and conditioning programs all be married up and be aligned in that respect. But, but certainly the dollars. Now, we know that private equity is not going to be here, but the debt aspect of being able to bring 40 or $50 million into it, into a lead into a line series would be, I think, fundamentally important for Eddie Jones to say. Yes, yeah, not not good news for Australian rugby on the, the PE front, um, but they kind of been shifting the messaging uh, a while before that, suggesting that debt was potentially a more attractive um, option. Uh, Phil Wall, certainly that's been his, his talk since he came into the job uh, in late June, early July from memory. Um, and probably a good, good shift then on to Phil yesterday. So a um, bit of context uh, for you all. Um, we met with uh, Phil War, or certainly a um, group of reporters, um, Monday morning, local time in, in St. Etienne. Um, he was saying how he was going back to Paris that afternoon for meetings with uh, New Zealand rugby chief executive, uh, his, his counterpart um, in NZ around some meetings for the Super Rugby Commission, um, uh, clearly some how they can work you know, more, more closely together. Um, probably going to sign off on the chair by the sounds of things whose name escapes me Christy I don't know if you recall yep. uh, Kevin Malloy were that that's him Kevin Malloy hey, is, uh, he the, is, is he the CEO of of, of, of the Super Rugby Commission or the chair either rule I think he's going to be the ch- the, the chairman uh, um, is, is the plan and yeah just Phil uh, there was just going back through the transcript yesterday there was some really good honest answers and I and I think the one around um yeah there's there's no excuses here and I asked him I used the word expendable was this word sorry was this World Cup expendable from rugby Australia because that's what it's kind of felt like to a lot of people um I've spoken to here in France and certainly um speaking to friends and family back home that um this World Cup the the work back from 2027 message uh just was never going to wash and and I think Phil admitted that well did he said yes you know that's that's not good enough we're not a rugby nation that you know can plan from one world cup uh for the next world cup 
at the one that we're going away to attempt to go certainly as, as deep as possible into as we can. Now, I know you've spoken around the need to certainly look to the future and mention the France um, from 2019 to 2023, how they executed uh, that plan, but they still made a quarterfinal and were probably a red card from getting to a, to a semifinal. So for Phil to come out and say, look, there's, there's no excuses. Um, people traveled over here, spent, you know, large amounts of money in a tough financial climate um, to come and support the team. And they've had very little to support um, once they got here. Uh, on on the flip side, Phil, he, he kind of ducked around a few questions, didn't he, around um, just um, Eddie Jones's future, I guess, number one, again, going back to, all well, we've got the commitment um, from Eddie. Um, we All we can do is, is take him at his word. And then the squad selections as well. Did, did in your mind, Phil, did uh, Eddie Jones get a few of these wrong? Should there have been a more experience in this team? Um, and, you know, hindsight's clearly a wonderful thing, but um, he wouldn't uh, kind of, he sat on the fence a bit there too, didn't he? So there was there was some good bits from Phil, some good honesty, and um, but some others, you know, I, I think he kind of left uh, unanswered, which is not unlike chief executives to do. Yeah, and it's a difficult one for him to kind of go, yeah, well, I think the squad was terrible. Uh, the, you know, the squad selection and the team selection and the coaching selection, I don't think you can go out there and publicly, I mean, the world, the Wallabies are still technically in this World Cup campaign, so you wouldn't be able to come out. I don't think and really criticise that. Right. Uh, but I tend to agree. I think he he he's expressing what most administrators expressed for some time is that the, the need to develop an underbelly, uh, and that's so apparent. And under given the struggles that the Wallabies have experienced without Skelton and Tupo, and especially Alatoa, because if you have one of those two tight head props this campaign is different i think but yeah he, he he's been very firm all along about the need to have a, a feel the base a bigger underbelly develop it get closer to the grassroots how he actually does that is probably one of the key questions around uh, the rugby solutions that he needs to bring into effect um whether or not there's enough high pressure games and how they um, not only from an Australian-New Zealand partnership, but, but grow into Japan and perhaps have extra competitions, knockout tournaments to have more high-stakes high games. Because at the moment, as Pierre-Henri Bronkin, one of probably the more valid points that he's raised, is that there's just not enough in Australian rugby at the moment, yep. and especially given the fact that over the last couple of years, you've had players that have been stood down at times through our super matches for rest reasons so that they're fully fit going into international seasons but the reality is it's meant that guys like the Fikettis have been stood down for games against the Crusaders and the Blues the most high pressured games that you can possibly ask for so there is so many issues it's now about I think the, the, the need for RA to have strong negotiation skills over the next two to three months is going to be so crucial getting everyone on board because there are fractures uh, there is a lack of trust. And that was one of the key words that Phil spoke about yesterday, the lack of trust. And he actually said that this World Cup campaign has not helped with the lack of trust that the wider stakeholders have. And why? Because it's three, four years of work was pretty much tossed away with Eddie Jones and it's backfired. So the states all recognize that if the Wallabies go well, there's more money that comes into the game. When the Wallabies don't go well, it means that everyone gets shortchanged. That's inclusive of Stevens, Pathways, Women's Rugby, 
everyone else as a result of the Wallaby struggles is now at a lesser footing going forward. And that's a that's a really difficult thing to comprehend for your wider stakeholders. And great point around the Fakedia. And this is where the players have got to be listened to as part of this review, isn't it? That a guy like that's coming out and saying, yeah, I, I was stood down for the, the Blues and Crusaders. Those are the games, as he said, I, I have to be playing. If I'm going to become a better rugby player, firstly at super rugby level and then at test level as a result, then don't sit me for these games. I understand injuries are a part of the game and and whatever whatever else. But um, as you mentioned, Bronken's point there, and there's just not enough high pressure games. Well, there's not enough games to start with, and then when you're removing guys um, from two games during the season as well, then you're only holding them back even further. So um, hopefully the players um, will you know voice similar opinions to Fakedi. Um, I don't know how many involved will be in the review. Phil said they were still kind of ironing out just exactly how that will transpire, whether it would just be Will Skelton or the leadership group. But if all the players were given the opportunity to, to speak, then I'm, I'm sure you know, you've know got to think that they'd voice similar concerns. Yeah, interestingly though, he said that maybe I, I might be someone who wants to play, but there was a few. There's a few players that probably don't mind the waste and the ability to put your feet up. So that's important to acknowledge that not everyone has the same need, and and I think that's almost been shown with someone like Rob Balotelli, who's played every test this year. He's only missed a handful of minutes. That was because of a HIA just in the weekend check. Uh, so. So his, you know, workload is different to a, a phrase and perhaps a phrase McRide or a Rob Leota who's played very few minutes, a Josh Kemeny who's played uh, barely, barely more than ten minutes in, across his two two tests, and that also raises eyebrows and makes people scratch your head when when someone is only given two minutes or a couple of minutes against Portugal and a couple of minutes against Argentina. What's the point of having someone on the bench? What's the point of bringing someone to a World Cup if you're not going to use them at all? Uh, we all know the importance of, of a deep squad and, and keeping everyone fresh. There's so many questions to come out uh, to be answered in this review. How many of you actually see what the accountability is, how open it is. They're some of the things that I think is important for RA to get right because the stakeholders, the super rugby states, they want to see what's going on in this review so that they have a greater understanding of what the heck's happening because there's a review every year and unfortunately, not much has been done about it, certainly from an on-field perspective. Um, I think there's been some valid points over the last couple of weeks around the 2015 World Cup final. A result that Australia made was a great result in terms of, yes, congratulations. There was some very good players in that. But the reality is they probably should have been knocked out in the quarters. And had that happened, maybe, maybe we would have got to a, a point in time where alignment, centralisation is put on the front door step rather than being pushed down the road because some of those things have been put in the too hard basket for way too long and everyone that seems to want to change the system get everyone more aligned like your david new supporters uh, have always been pushed out people don't like change people don't like embracing change people are scared that their jobs might be lost it's so important that everyone comes together now. Yes, indeed. Well said. Um, all right, mate. Um, let's let's look ahead then to, I guess, uh, a cracking final weekend. Um, I think uh, every pool is, you know, alive to, to some degree, or at least there's there's a couple of games 
Um, certainly, if we start with Pool A and his uh, France Italy on on Thursday night, um, it's going to have a direct effect on on the finish there. Um, Italy, of course, you know, hammered by the All Blacks in just what was a, um, a scintillating attacking display and and a, a real throwback to um, just how uh, dangerous they can be from all parts of the field. The execution of skill was brilliant. Um, it was a night that they were just on and. You know, I think they probably put at least fifty points on most of the world's top ten. Um, and poor yeah, old Italy just—they're the, just... the most lethal team in, in world rugby. There's no doubt about it. When they're on, they're on. We've seen it against South Africa earlier this year. Argentina against Australia at times—they can sp- score points quicker than anyone. There's no doubt about that. And Italy certainly played uh, into their hands a little bit. Who are playing a more attractive style of game and. Perhaps that's why they beat, you know, Uruguay and Namibia as they did. Um, perhaps not as dominant. Um, they hadn't been in, in previous campaigns, but it really ran up a score. I think Italy-France will be closer on Thursday night because um, they know each other quite well from the Six Nations, clearly. Um, I, I don't think there's an upset coming, but I, I think it'll be a, a much tighter game. Uh, Pool B's the big one, isn't it? Um, and the um, the conspiracy theorists are out there uh, on social media. There's a few South Africans just starting to shift a little nervously in their seats around, oh, could there be a gentleman's agreement here that um, I think uh, Scotland would need to win and allow Ireland to get a, a win with a bonus point and Ireland to get a, a losing bonus point and a four-try bonus point. Maybe it's something along. I haven't got the numbers right in front of me, but there is a, a way in which the, those two teams could... I'm not going to say conspire together, but if this match plays out in such a fashion, I don't think it will. I think it'll be a bit of a tight, tighter game and a grind that South Africa could go out. Um, but just enough to, you know, make uh, Saturday night, uh, you and I are both going to be there, I think, in Paris at the Stade de France, another 9pm kickoff, which we can't wait for. Um, if you guys who uh, won't see it, I'm rolling my eyes there. Um but yeah, that's that's going to be a cracking game to, to wind up uh, Pool B, isn't it? And I think Ireland win just the way that they were able to deny South Africa uh, and control their own game through that huge match a, a fortnight ago. Um, I think it'll be tight. I think Scotland, you know, may scrape a bonus point, but I think probably more in that 10 to 12 points margin uh, for that one. Oh, there's some great games to look forward to this weekend. And yes, that's, that is certainly one. Argentina, Japan, that's another huge one on the Sunday. Uh, over in Nantes, I think it is. Um, yeah, France, Italy, it's going to be a cracker. Uh, in Lyon, looking forward to that. I think 60,000 capacity or so. That'll be brilliant. But yeah, I think all eyes are going to be on, on Scotland and Ireland. If Ireland were to, to lose and lose well, then that's would be devastating for their hopes, given how uh, clinical they've been for so long. I tend to agree. I can't see them... Uh, I can't see them losing this. I think Ireland are just too sharp um, to, to to stumble, to fall over at that point in time. Great team. Um, and they seem like they are, they're all, uh, the train wheels are going and they're all heading for one journey. Which Same direction, uh, yep. Yeah, they're, they're on a quarterfinal march against New Zealand. Scotland, clearly they were way too good for Romania the other night. I don't think that is the best test to have a lot of players come back for a big game, to have that week off. It doesn't always work to have a week off and then come back and then try to get all the cohesion back. 
But it'll be, I, I agree, I think it'll be a low-scoring game, particularly in the first half. It might blow out if one side is chasing the game, but that'll be what we've come to expect, a really niggly, tight game. So much in it. I think the atmosphere is going to be electric. Uh, Stade de France, what a, what a venue it is. And we saw just less than two weeks ago, South Africa and Ireland, how green it was. Uh, this is one of the real games to look forward to, for sure. Elsewhere in uh, Pool C, clearly uh, Wales have got Georgia. Uh, you know, I think Wales will win that. Probably, um, you know, similar to uh, how the Australians played against them in Fiji. I think Georgia, a bit like Portugal and um, maybe to a lesser extent Uruguay, because they started really well against France, didn't they? But some of these smaller nations, uh, Tonga, another one, getting better with each game they play at the tournament. Um, and that just comes back to world rugby finding a way to get more top level rugby into these teams that we just don't see it at world cups and say oh geez wouldn't it be great to get more games for these teams what are we going to do about it and then a week after the tournament uh, everyone's forgotten about it um apart from those involved of course so so keep banging the drum there uh pool d as you mentioned yeah the big one argentina and japan virtually a shootout for second spot um in pool d behind england and a, a likely crack at wales um the week after I don't know which way I think this one might go. Argentina, you know, a little bit better last week, clearly against the, you know, lesser opposition in in Chile um, with a few different changes as well. They've freshened up guys. um, Matera, Montoya, Buffelli all had the week off. So you've probably got to think how central those three guys, those three players are to that team that they will have actually benefited from that rest, I think, in that case. But... um, They've they haven't played well the Permas and and I think Michael Checker would be the first to acknowledge that Japan aren't the team same team they were four years ago clearly um, but uh, I just maybe Argentina might get on top a little bit in the forwards and we saw how Samoa came back with even a man down against Japan last week and very nearly stole that so I think my money's on Argentina there and and then if they were to get their game right. I think in the space of a week and, and play like we know they can, I think they can, they're a team that probably can create some headaches for Wales as well. Yeah, I think, you, I think you're right. I'll, it'll be interesting to see the tandem situation. I, I thought Nico Sanchez was really good on the weekend uh, against Chile, clearly, but he's he's a guy that's done, been there, done it before, kicking games, elite, um, goal-kicking game, calm. Uh, he, was, he was at the top of his game against Chile, I thought. Um, the the breakdown's the key one for me. I think it's it's who wins that. If Argentina can play how they want to play, I think there will be too much uh, strength in their forward pack, particularly their loose forwards. Uh, their midfield will be, be crucial. Their ball handling, especially if Japan though can stifle that, uh, frustrate them, they have that quick ruck speed that allows them to. Uh, use some of the creative plans that Tony Brown, the, the attack coach, brings in. So that'll be that'll be the crucial element, I think, around that breakdown. And nonetheless, uh, eyes ahead um, round four, or I guess round five, really fourth weekend. Um, it's a bit. Uh, I think I've been here a month, mate, today, and you're probably what five and a half, six weeks in. So um, we're certainly due a couple of days off uh, at least. I look forward to seeing you in Paris uh, Friday or Saturday. And who knows, you know, we, we may well come back to eat our words and uh, looking at, at Portugal coming up with a mother of all upsets. It might be one or two in a hundred, but um, 
stranger things have happened uh, and uh, we'll just uh, wait for, I guess, the final pool game of uh, all the pool games, all 40, was it 40 odd, maybe, um, in total. So, uh, yeah, look, um, a fascinating way to finish and um, we'll just have to see what happens. And it's a long wait for the Wallabies, given that I think it's Fiji and uh, Portugal, the last game of, yep. of of the entire pool stage. So that'll be late on Sunday evening. Australians will be waking up, and I, and I hope that they're watching that game because if 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 Fiji struggle in the same first twenty minutes that they did against uh, Georgia, then then there could be a snowballing effect. Uh, there'll be some anxiety about that, but I think they'll be too strong and. It's some huge decisions over the next couple of weeks about the board, the stability, the cohesion, uh, the, the the centralization aspects. That's so crucial going forward, and and it probably sounds a bit boring at times, but for Australian rugby to kind of get back to where they need to be getting to, uh, some big decisions need to be made, and and made sooner rather than later to give everyone a bit of confidence around stability. Final point from me around that is Phil Wall said yesterday that. You only need, and they probably accept that there might only be two or three uh, super rugby states to jump on board first, and then perhaps later in time more. That is more likely to occur, and if indeed it does, uh, two or three is better than the uh, than none, I think, and that would be some progress. Certainly would, uh, and yeah, excellent point. That one had slipped my mind. So watch this space on centralisation over the next few months. All right, mate. Um, thanks very much uh, again. Uh, I think you're off to Lake Annecy today, about two and a bit hours from where you are with a few of the other guys. Um, enjoy that. Uh, it looks like being another pretty cracking day here in France. I don't think we've seen a, a cloud in the sky for about a month now. So, uh, mate, put the, well, put that, put the feet up, get out and explore and enjoy that. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll check you in Paris. Can't wait to do it again. Cheers, Bruce. Thanks, mate. Thanks all. As ever, give us a shout out on social media or wherever else. I'd um, love to hear from you and uh, we'll pick it up again in a week's time. Cheers.